Well, we are on week three of our series through the summer in the book of Romans. We're going to actually be in chapter two today. Uh, And so we've kind of wrapped up the last two weeks in chapter one. So if you want to turn to Romans chapter two, we invite you to do that. We always have paper Bibles at the uh, connections table at the back if that's something that you would like uh, so that you can have a physical copy with you. Um, I was thinking this week, I have lived nearly exactly half of my life um, in small towns and I've lived about half of my life in the Metroplex, uh, which is interesting. And it was like multiple different times. And so I've got friends on like both sides of the spectrum, right? Like I've, I, I'm, I, at heart, I'm kind of a small town guy. Like I like to be in the country, in the woods, hunting and fishing by myself. Like I enjoy that. So that's really where my heart is. But I've come to appreciate people from both areas. But there came this moment uh, where one of my friends uh, from in my small town, and when I say small town, Uh, I'm talking like 1,800 people is where I grew up. Uh, So this is like a big town to some people in the small town I grew up in. Um, But when you live in a small town, there's people that live in the country, right? When you're in a small town, you say they live out in the country. That's like backwoods people, okay? So, Because anybody else would go, no, you live in the country. And when you say, no, these folks live in the country, it's like, they, we don't really know exactly where their house is, but they drive out of town into the woods and they're gone. So one of those friends of mine called me one day and he says, hey, put on a camp. Uh, really need a camp speaker. Do you have someone to come and do the student camp for me? Um, and I was like, absolutely. I'm living in Flower Mound at the time. And so totally different type of people over here that I'm working with in Flower Mound. I know a guy that I think would do a phenomenal job, but it's, it's a different world, right? I'm, I'm talking now to a guy that carries a Louis Vuitton man purse, and I'm okay with that. Like, I appreciate that in him. Not my deal. And so he calls my country friend. And, and my buddy in the country says... Hey, man, I really need you to come out to this camp, and I want you to preach and get these boys lost out here. And once you get them lost, then you can get them saved. And my buddy from the, from the city was like, I'm not going to that camp, bro. I don't even know what that guy's saying. Um, and though that's probably some really bad theology to say, hey, let's preach and get someone lost, and then we can preach and get them saved, right? We are lost. We don't need someone to preach that to us. And God is the one who saves, not the preacher. Um, there was some sentiment from my buddy that is actually what, what Paul is trying to do for you and I in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. Really his purpose, after he's been like, hey, I'm coming to, to see you hopefully one day. I love you. I've heard of great things in your church. I want to encourage you. I want to be encouraged by you. I want to preach the gospel to you. He just switches now to what, what Austin started for us last week of the wrath of God that all of humanity sets under. And he spends the rest of one through most of three trying to paint one of the darkest pictures possible. I don't think he's trying to get us lost. (laughs) We're already lost. He's just trying to show us that we are lost. And I think Paul's desire out of love and mercy and grace and a a desire for Christ to be magnified in the people in Rome, he's going, I want to preach in such a way that you feel hopeless in your own morality that you feel hopeless and you are longing for a Savior to come and rescue you. That, that's his purpose. And sometimes that's really good for you and I to hear. Sometimes light only shines brightest when we understand how deep the darkness is that you and I actually are in outside of Jesus. And I've been praying this week, even this morning, church, my, my heart's been burdened. Like what we're going to talk about today is pretty, pretty hard stuff, and I think it's super relevant to you and I in like Bible Belt, cultural Christianity, America. 
And, and this scripture is going to speak and, and call each of us, including myself, it's calling me out. But only for the purpose of knowing the Lord deeper and walking in greater obedience and joy that he has for us. And so I've been praying that, it, that he would speak to your heart, to my heart. I've been convicted by this. I've been praying that maybe there's someone in this room that you know all the things, but you don't know Jesus, and that he would call you to himself this morning. And so I want to recap quickly, and then we'll jump into two. As we went through Romans chapter 1, 116 is kind of like the, the thesis, the theme of this entire book. And if you want to look at that for a moment, it says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And, and so this is the theme. He's going, man, I want to put on display the, the active power of, of God saving for himself a people, which is found in the gospel message. It's not just, hey, let me tell you a story that you learned in VBS. No, this is the power of God on display of, of regenerating and making for himself a people to call his own. And so he starts by, look, I'm about to get into some hard stuff. I'm about to tell you three chapters of hard stuff, but I want you to know I'm not ashamed of what I'm about to tell you because I want you to see your need for Jesus. So he goes, I love you. I'm not ashamed of what I'm about to say, and you need to listen carefully or you're going to miss it. And so then he began, and he started in 118 talking about, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and, and unrighteousness of men who have by their unrighteousness suppressed the truth. And Austin did a phenomenal job. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to listen to that. It's going, man, in our relationship ungodliness with God that we have forsaken, in our unrighteous deeds among men, we've suppressed the truth of who God is, who he has called us to be, and we desire to be our own God. And then he goes through this idea that you and I, regardless of who we are, are under the wrath of God. And outside of Jesus, there is no hope. And he talks about how uh, these people had exchanged. There's this over and over exchange of who God was for worshiping uh, other things that God created. And then it gets to, to me, the scariest part of his active wrath in people right now is this idea of releasing us over to the sin that we desire. It's though he's been holding us and, and keeping us, and he goes, if this is what you want, my, my wrath, my judgment right now is going to be, then I'll release you to that. So you'll see what the end gets you to. But it's still with a desire for us to go, man, Christ is the only thing that will be sufficient for my life. And he goes through these things, and he uses kind of this case study of homosexuality as one of these key sins of how we can, we can turn to a debased mind and exchange the things that God's created us for and begin to worship the things that, that aren't and should not be. And so often we love that part, but then we get to the end of Romans, right, and there's this big vice list of, of lying and covetousness and malice and disobedient to your parents, and he's going, everybody's under this. Everybody's under this wrath. And so then in, in chapter 2, what we're about to switch to now is he's going to talk to the Jewish religious people, God's people, the ones that he said, hey, I'm going to bring you into covenant. You're going to be my people. I've given you the law, right? They had the Torah, these, these books of the Bible. They had their own Bible. They had the, their own way to live. They had their outward signs that they were of God. He's going, I'm going to talk to you now. I'm going to talk to the church people. Talk to the people that have been, know the things of God, but maybe don't live them out in your life. And here's where he begins in chapter 2 of verse 1. He says, therefore you have no excuse, O oh man. I, I don't know if you got kids, but when I go 
you have no excuse for what you just did. The hammer's about to drop. I just like <laughs> I don't care what you're about to tell me that will justify what you just did. You don't have any excuses. And this is what Paul's saying. It doesn't matter who you are, what your upbringing looked like, what circumstances you lived in were without excuse. And he says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another who condemn, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And so all of a sudden we get to like what every person in the world loves to hear, you can't judge me. And yet what he's saying is nearly every single person judges others' sin, hoping to make ourselves feel better about the exact same things that are in our life. Some of the most critical people that I've ever met that love to point out the flaws in other people are some of the most insecure people in their identity in Jesus. I'm talking in the church. They don't understand what Christ has done in them. And so what they long to do is instead of worrying about their own repentance and their own guilt and their own shame, they're able to look at that in other people and go, let me point out everything else in you. And even though I do it, you do it worse. And we don't have to deal with our own hearts. This is, this is such a default part of who we are in humanity that psychology has had to come up with a term for this. And the term is projection. Have you all heard that before? They're projecting. Uh, th this is so much in us that they're like, hey, we, we've got to make a science of studying why people do this. And I want to give you just a, a, a worldly definition of projection. But it's interesting to me. There's still so many spiritual implications in this, in this definition. Here's what it says. Projection is often viewed as a coping strategy that people engage in when experiencing intense and complex emotions. When we project our feelings onto others, it can serve as a way to keep us from experiencing uncomfortable emotions like fear, guilt, or shame. It can also be an unconscious effort to preserve our self-esteem, our sense of self. Even psychologists are going, hey, there's something in human nature that you long to look at somebody else, that I long to look at someone else and point out their flaws to guard myself from dealing with my own guilt, shame, and sin. And Paul's going, man, do you not think that as you are so critical of other people that you're not being judged and condemning yourself in the same things? You're pointing out where everybody is flawed and yet you don't even see the sin and depravity of your own heart, that's the same thing you're calling them out for. And, and I think what happens in you and I, I think the reason we do this, this idea, right, is maybe if we can help ourselves not have to feel guilt, shame, deal with repentance of our own sin, 
maybe we'll find freedom in our conscience if we can just keep belittling everybody else so that it elevates us in our own mind. And Paul is trying to say, listen, there is no freedom in your heart, in your conscience, and in your guilt, and in your shame by looking at other people. The freedom is found in coming in repentance in Christ. That's where freedom's found. That we would come and go, I'm going to quit worrying about every little thing that's wrong and every single other person, and I'm going to go, what, what about my heart? I want freedom. I want joy. And so Paul's going, man, don't, don't think for a moment that you and I as religious people will escape the judgment as we judge others. And so he continues on. He says, there's, there's a reason why. Have you ever looked at stuff and gone, God, why are you taking so long to, to, to show this person their, their, their sin? Have you ever felt that before? Like, where, where are you? And, and I love what Paul says in verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness? What is the riches of God's kindness? It is the, the reality that we serve a God who is holy and righteous, has to be just, and, and out of that, in his righteousness, he, he has to pour out wrath. And so he's going, I am holy, I'm, I'm just, I will make right what is wrong in this world, but because of my loving kindness and this word forbearance, the word forbearance is God's restraint in judging sin and pouring out wrath. That's what forbearance means. You see that in Scripture. God's restraint of pouring out wrath and judging sin. So in his patience, in his kindness, he's going, I have to justly pour out judgment and wrath. But what I'm going to do is restrain myself because I have this longing and this love for my creation to repent and turn to me. It's coming, but it's this crazy picture of him actively saying, I'm restraining myself. I could go right now. I deserve to get to go right now, but I have grace and mercy and kindness. He's going, not only is he doing that for others, but he's doing it for you. And he continues on, and look what he says. In this act of restraint, verse 5, he longs for you, not the other person, you, to turn to repentance and he says, but because of your hard and impotent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Here's the picture, church. He's literally saying, hey, you are great at, at being critical of everyone around you, hoping to protect your own self-esteem. But what you're actually doing in judging others, and as I'm, I am restraining myself from wrath, it's just more and more days of wrath piling up for you because you have a hard heart. And that's difficult. And so he continues on in verse 6. In 6 through 13 is difficult to understand. Okay, I want to preface with that. There's a lot of people that have read this and, and I think taken this incorrectly. But also there's a lot of well-meaning people that, uh, that take it the wrong way on the other side of the ditch. And we're going to look at it. Verse 6. He, God, in this judgment, this final judgment, will render to each one according to his works. Now, that sounds different, right? Hold up, I thought it was like grace alone, faith alone, Jesus alone. And now, Paul, you're saying everyone's going to be judged according to their works? What does he mean? He keeps talking. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So we're talking about heaven and hell here. 
He's going, I'm going to judge people by their works and heaven and hell hang in the balance of their works. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So we have heaven, we have wrath and fury, hell. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Now listen, he continues on and it, it even could seem more confusing. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is written, not the hearers of the law. So we could, we could put this in our context. Not the hearers of the Bible who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified or made right. And so all of a sudden you've got this weird language from Paul that feels a little bit like this is rubbing me weird reading this. So, so as a Christian, as, as a non-believer, it doesn't matter. We're going to be judged on our works and heaven and our hell are hanging in the balance. What, what does he mean by this? He, he's talking about a faith that has active obedience. I want to, for a moment before you leave, and like this is the most heretical thing I've ever heard. Look, we are saved by faith in Christ alone, right? An active surrendering to Jesus as Lord. This is the faith that is saving. But what, what Paul is saying is, as a Christian, you will stand before God and there will have been active obedience in your life as a, as a, as a proof of your faith, your, your saving faith in Jesus. And he's saying there's going to be a lot of church people, there's going to be a lot of Jews who had active disobedience against the Lord, and their works proved that though they knew everything, did everything, they did not know Jesus. Now, what I'm not saying is that we're sinless, that we get this perfect. Uh, I'm not saying there's not seasons, moments of disobedience in your life, but here's what I can tell you, church. If your life is not marked by transformation, you're, you're not in Christ. And the reason being is this. The Spirit of God that comes in us, the seal of our salvation, promises to transform our hearts and our minds. It is a guarantee of what he does in us when Christ seals us in him. And so if the Spirit is not in you and you're not being transformed in a way that there is some wrestling in you to go, I want to follow Jesus. I wrestle with the old man, but I want to follow Jesus. And this is our life until we die. If that's not happening, there's no Spirit in you doing that. He's going, man, you don't know Christ. You'll be judged according to your works, and your work's going to prove that you didn't know Christ. And I'm telling you, we live in a time and in a culture and in a church world. Look, it's, it's, not, it's not popular anymore. Like, this isn't going to help you in your business being a Christian for the most part. Like, just in worldly terms, right? It's not going to help you to, to gain a stance in the community anymore. Like, those days are gone. But your parents and your grandparents, it was that way. And so it's still instilled in you in some level and in the people in the church. And so we still live in a time where it's like, I think this is just what you do living in Waco, Texas, living in, living in the South, living in a place where Christianity gained you prestige and honor for the last 70 years until these last 15 years. And so we're, our churches are filled with people that Paul is talking about, where they're going, man, I, I know the word. And we're going to see this in a second. I know the word. I do the things. I can judge it. I'm so good at seeing 
how other people are breaking the commands of God. And he's going, but you live in active disobedience to the Lord, and you're not his. And this is scary, and it's difficult. But it calls us to assess our heart and our life. And still Paul is going, and I want you to know freedom. I want you to know Christ. I want you to walk in real transformation. And so he continues on in this. Here's what's interesting to me. I do want to for a moment look at nine, this promise of like the one that does good and the one that does bad. Verse 9 says, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. And we're like, yes and amen. Every bad person should get bad things. That's just in us. All right? (laughs) And it continues and it says, but... um, to the Jew first and also the Greek, verse 10, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. Uh, my best friend from high school came and spent the weekend with me. And ever since about, I'd say the last 20 years plus, his life has been extremely difficult. I asked permission to share this. <laughs> uh, just one of those deals where you look back, you go, this is nothing like what I wanted my life to be. Crazy hard stuff. Everything you'd possibly go, I would never want this to happen to my family or my children. He's living it. Dude loves the Lord. A few years ago, sold everything he had and took his family and went overseas to do missions. I'm talking about doing the good things of God. And he came back because it fell apart. And now his kids are in a place where they go, there is no God. Because... How are all these bad things happening? Why is our household so messed up? Why did things go the way they did in the, overseas? Why are, are, are family relationships so broken in this family? And they've gone, there's no God, and I don't want anything to do with him. And I think there's a piece of us, church, that feels like, man, if I follow Jesus and I do what's right, things should go well in my life. Uh, I used to have, <laughs> I used to joke all the time, like with my friends, when something would go wrong, be like, you're not living right, right? Like, that's, we say that because still innately there's something in us that goes, if you live right, good things should happen. And man, I'm just telling you that, that that's not the call of Christianity. What he's saying is, is if you do these things, if you obey and practice the things of God, what does he say? It would be glory and honor and peace. He's talking about a future glory and honor and peace. But because we have this future glory, honor, and peace, we're able to have hope and joy and peace right now. And I'm just going to tell you, man, there's going to be moments where life does not go the way you think it should. And it is incorrect thinking to go, I have lived for you, Lord. Where are you? Why are you not showing up? He's going, man, this place is not your home. I'm giving you something greater And so you walk in hope and you walk in peace and you walk in joy regardless of what today looks like because I've saved you for something greater. I mean, I think it's important for us to see that because I'm telling you cultural Christianity. And when I say cultural Christianity, I mean we just grew up in the Bible Belt. Some of you aren't even from the Bible Belt. I've lived here my whole life. And it's a little of the ideas that go around. I'm telling you following Jesus will probably be harder than not following Jesus. Doing what is right and obedient to Christ will cost you more than not doing what's right and obedient to Christ. And so he says we're going to be judged according to our works because it's the proof of our salvation. And he continues on to finish up, and we're going to go fast through this last part. 
But it tells the same story. It says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, and when we're talking about the law specifically, we're talking about uh, the Torah that was given uh, to the Israelites. We're talking about the Ten Commandments and, the, and all of these different rituals and things to do. But really, it's, it's a picture of how to relate to God. And to show us our need for a Savior. And so he's going, man, even when Gentiles, mostly probably you and I, who don't have a law, we weren't given that. Like, we, we weren't the Jewish people. He said, hey, these Ten Commandments are for you. He says, for when the Gentiles who do not have a law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they don't have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bear witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What he's saying, and we know this, man, it doesn't matter if you're a believer. It doesn't matter. Everywhere in the world, there is some sense of morality in men and women. Right? We make up, even people that don't know the Bible, make up. Hey, dude, you just killed that guy. That probably is something we're not supposed to do. It makes me feel weird inside, right? Like there's something in us that where morality is in there because of the image of God in us. He's going, so even the Gentiles who weren't given the Torah, weren't given the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, there's something in them that they're still living to some standard because something's calling them to live higher than just complete immorality. It's there, but they still there's something in them going, that probably wasn't good. So, so even us, we're being judged by this. But he goes on to continue to talk to these religious Jews, and here's what he says. 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the... I'm going to break this down for you and I as Christians here in a second, but I just want you to think 2023 Wellspring Church, the people, you and I sitting in this room, how does this apply? What is he speaking to us? But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, the word of God, and boast in God, and know his will, and approve what is excellent, you're going, not only do I know the word, I prove it. It's excellent. Because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of, foolish, of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. What he just said for you and I is this. You, you've been to Bible study. <laughs> you know the word really well. And you are able to even teach this and are teaching this to other people. He's going, I'm talking to that person, that Jew. You know this stuff. You approve it. You teach it. But you don't live by it. He said, that person. He said, 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? As a pastor and a teacher, this is a scary verse for me, right? I guarantee you there's things in here where I'm still getting convicted and going, i got to figure out how to live this out in the spirit of God. i got to walk in repentance. Are you one who teaches it, yet do you do the same thing? Do you teach to yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And then he gets into a part that I think we all know what circumcision is, right? It was this cutting away of flesh uh, to, to signify that it was this outward ritual given by God, a good thing, 
uh, to, to show that you were God's, right? You belong to the Lord. And so he says, for circumcision indeed is of value. This is a good thing that God gave. If you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Let me put this into church world, New Testament church world. You have been through water baptism. You take part in communion. You teach Bible study. You disciple people one-on-one because you know the word so well. You do all of these things, and yet there's no active obedience to Christ in your life. And so all of those things that you have done, which are good and right and given to us by the Lord, he's going to, it's the same as if you'd never been baptized. Be the same as if you've never taken communion. Be the same as if you're not a covenant member of the church. It's the same as if you have never given to the church. None of that matters because it's all outward. And your heart is still dead. And he goes to the extent to say, but you know what? The person that has in faith surrendered to Jesus is actually condemning those who are really religious and know all the things. Even if they hadn't made it all the way through the discipleship course yet, they're condemning those that say, man, I, am a, I know everything about everything. I'm so good at being critical of other people. He's going, you're dead inside. There's no obedience to Christ in you. You're just playing a game, and you've gotten really good at it. And it is this call to you and I to assess our hearts of is our faith in Christ for salvation. And if it is, the Spirit of God dwells in you and I, and it propels us to do those outside things, to be baptized, to take part in communion, to join a local church, to serve, to give, to do all the things. But it's because our heart has been radically transformed by the gospel. He tells us the motivation of the other thing, and this this is pretty scary, I think. <laughs> Look what he says at the end. Verse 29. But a Jew is one outwardly. Nor our Jew is, uh, I'm sorry. For no one is a Jew who is merely at one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, right? He, he cares about the heart. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Listen, I think it's interesting that this is how Paul ends this little moment. He says his praise, the one who is one inwardly, his praise is not from man, but from God. And I thought on that verse this week for a while. And and here's what I think Paul is saying. The motivation sometimes of those to do the outward things is really just a hope to please, to find approval, to fit in to the people around us. And all of a sudden, our our idolatry, our worship is not of God, but it's of those around us that we can show them 
that we, we're supposed to be here. I'm, I'm supposed to be a part of this group. Look, I've been baptized. Look, look, I take communion. Look, I, I, I give generously. Look, I serve. I teach. And really your heart motivation is for people to look at you and go, man, this guy probably loves the Lord. And what's amazing to me is what Paul is trying to teach is that is enslaving. If you have lived your Christian life because you wanted to get approval from your folks or your grandma that prayed for you or, or for the people in your community that you look up to or for whoever, it enslaves you because you're living your life for their approval. And Paul is saying, listen, Jew, you're doing all these things that the Torah said. You're doing all these things, and yet you're full of dead men bones. And if you would turn to Christ, your praise will be from the Lord, not from man, and you will find freedom. God longs in Christ to free you from the bonds of slavery and idolatry. And so what Paul's trying to say, like I started this thing with, is he's trying to get things pretty dark for you and I today. And it, it's heavy. And it's a weight we should feel. Man, I, I wouldn't even share this, but I'm going to. Last Sunday night, I was called into someone's house uh, because the, the mom at 69 years old with stage 4 cancer in her kidneys, lungs, heart, and brain was about to pass. And the family calls me in to pray. And I sat in there and I thought, I, I, I talked to the husband. I was like, man, where did this come from? A year and a half ago, just popped up out of nowhere. Moved here to be with our grandkids. We bought an RV so that we could travel together. And then all of a sudden, it's just gone. And I left for myself, myself who has a camper. <laughs> Myself who loved to do fun things. Myself who loved to be entertained by the world. I'm going, man, stuff is so fleeting. And I think Paul is just going, look, walk in joy, but do not be deceived. What matters in our life is what we do with Christ. And that's not supposed to scare you. That's not supposed to be emotional. That's just... That's real life. <laughs> That's real life for me as a 40-year-old to go 69 years old, retired well, and it's just done. Man, I want to live for Christ. Man, I don't, want to, I, I don't want to get to the end of my life and have been really good at fishing and hunting, have been really good at doing all the fun things that are offered to entertain my mind, and have missed countless opportunities to live sacrificially for Jesus because this place is not my home. And Paul is saying, listen, when you have been transformed from the inside, that is what begins to permeate out of you and I. And it is this wake-up call for you and I that just because of where we were born grew up in a place where you were probably supposed to be a Christian for the most part. If it wasn't your family, it was a friend that told you, this is probably what you need to do. Praise God, someone's doing that. But, but if your purpose was for your friend, your purpose was for your family, you've missed what Christ is trying to do in you and I. 
man, would we, would we live fervently in good works for the glory of God? But would it be the overflow of our heart and transformation that we've experienced in Christ saving us? Would we quit looking to other people and going, look how sinful and stupid they are to make ourselves feel better about who we are? But would we be able to go, I I am secure in my brokenness in Christ, and I'm able to come to him and say, I I don't don't care about my neighbor's sinfulness. I want my sinfulness taken out of my heart so I can go to them and love them well. And I can walk in confidence that that isn't measured by what other people think about me. And I'm telling you, that, 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 is, that, that rubs against the grain of our sin nature. And it is only something the Spirit of God can do in us. But can I tell you, there's so much joy to be had. There's so much freedom to be had in this. My, my prayer as we end today was this. Man, that we would take seriously as the people of God active faith and obedience. That we would quit being distracted that I would quit being distracted by things that don't matter. And that I would walk in this fullness of glory and hope and joy that Paul said is waiting for those who love Jesus. And and that instead of trying to make myself surrounded enough by others that are doing it worse than me, I would say, no, I want you to cleanse my heart and my soul for your glory. And and so I think our response is this, as we close. Man, if you don't know Christ, I've prayed specifically this morning that God would just in such a way show you the beauty of the gospel that, that, that is what is out there is in Christ and he is sufficient and he is what your soul desires and that you would turn to him today. It's been heavy on me. It's been really heavy on me that if you're a church person that doesn't know Jesus, that this morning you go, I'm a church person that actually doesn't know Jesus. And you would find the glory of our God and King in Christ. And then for you and I that are believers, that we'd get a lot less concerned about the brokenness of others, unless it's for our desire to help walk them to Jesus. And we'd be a lot more concerned about our obedience and our sinfulness that is deteriorating our heart and our soul. And, and man, just repent of that and turn to, turn to Christ.